0: But let's go ahead and pray. Uh, we're going to be doing a lesson this morning that you guys have been asking for since last year. I know Joe wanted us to do it last year. We're hitting the ice age. And uh, and then that will be the end of this quarter. We'll be moving on to God is in control and, and continuing on with uh, the rest of Genesis. And so looking forward to the <clears throat> material. I'm actually only going to be doing a part of it uh, this morning. We're going to be watching a uh, meteorologist named Michael Oward quite a bit this morning, uh, because he's the expert. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into things. Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, time for us to be together and to study your word together and also consider um, how your word interacts with uh, the Ice Age. Um, We ask, Lord, that you would help us to grow and see the importance of this topic, And, um, and we pray that your spirit would be with us in Christ's name amen all right uh, i'm going to show a little teaser and then we're going to do some review and then we'll jump into things so brian will this thing go automatically or does brian have to hit play let me see maybe if i yep because he's got it all set up
1: The ice on Greenland and Antarctica is in places miles deep and hundreds of miles wide. In the present, however, all but the edges of these ice sheets are cold deserts. Not enough snow and ice falls there to build up the depth of ice that we find today, even if long periods of time were available. The flood of the Bible may provide an answer. First of all, Flood rocks contain thick piles of lava and huge volumes of volcanic ash. Meteorologist Mike Ord has suggested that this might have led to the ice age. There's a lot of
2: uh, warm water uh, added to the the pre-flood oceans uh, from the crust and also a lot of lava flows and volcanism that heat the waters.
1: Evidence in fossils suggests that the oceans were warmed up in the course of the flood.
2: The average temperature of the ocean is 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, after the flood, it could have been an average of about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, and you could have taken a swim in the Arctic Ocean uh, right after the flood, it was so warm. But then it's going to start cooling down, and that cooling is mainly by evaporation. So uh, the key here is that um, with that warm water, you evaporate so much more uh, water vapor in
1: the air. As the oceans cooled after the flood, heavy snow began to fall. Computer simulations that begin with warm oceans show snow falling far inland over cool continents. Ice sheets build up thousands of feet thick where we see evidence for such ice today. This ice built up in only a few centuries of time. The whole process was sped up by volcanic ash cooling the earth after the flood.
2: Because of the instability of the earth after the flood There'd be a lot of volcanism. Aerosols are tiny uh, particles about a a micron in diameter, and they'll float up there in the stratosphere for for several years, and they reflect sunlight back to space. So you have a cooling mechanism. The ice is going to build up, and then finally it's going to come to a point where it's going to peak. That's glacial
1: maximum. Once the ocean's cooled enough, the evaporation slowed, the snows stopped, and the ice began to melt. Calculations suggest that the build-up, movement, and melting of ice did not require many thousands of years as is traditionally taught. From a warm world at the end of the flood to the melting of the ice took only centuries of time. And then
2: I see evidence of the one ice age and the short, rapid ice age that melts catastrophically. This is what I see uh, uh, based on science.
1: Present climate is not the key to understanding what produced thick piles of ice in Greenland and Antarctica. It looks like the Bible had the key all along. The Great Flood in the days of Noah. Mm.
0: Okay, a little teaser overview. This is just one theory of the Ice Age. It's not the dominant theory. There's actually two main theories. One's dominant, one's the, uh, I guess, non-dominant theory. And then you have Michael Oard's theory that we'll be talking a little bit about this morning. So this is uh, our para-family ministry trying to come alongside our families. Throughout the course of four years, we're looking at the whole Bible chronologically through the seven seas of history. We're in the middle part of at least historically called the area of confusion but we're still in the book of genesis today we're talking about the ice age Uh, let's do basically we're going to do a little bit of review and then we're going to take a look at some passages of scripture and then we're going to look at some some videos and then talk about some applications so let's just do a little bit of review in our first week we talked about we did a review of our basic Foundations, our bibliology. We talk about how the Bible's authoritative because it comes from God himself. He's the only one that's been everywhere at all times and knows all things. And he's reported information to us through special revelation. So that's the one thing that we can know with certainty. We also realize that the Bible is without error because it comes from a God who cannot lie or does not lie. Um, we've also talked about the fact that the Bible has been preserved for us. Um, it's not. We're not playing the telephone game. We're talking about um, thousands of manuscripts and the fact that God has guaranteed to preserve his word, and yet we still have a responsibility to preserve his word. The Bible says, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So he's guaranteed to preserve it. We've also argued that the Bible's sufficient to answer the big worldview questions. It's not going to help you f- uh, fix your carburetor. But it is going to help us get an idea of why we're here, where we're going, basic history of the world, how it's all going to end, and things like that. Um, When we study the Bible, we use a literal, historical, grammatical approach or interpretation, hermeneutic. Um, We talked about that, what it means to be literal, historical, grammatical, as opposed to spiritualizing the text or geschicta, just telling the stories, moral stories, as opposed to just looking at the big ideas rather than word by word verbal inspiration, uh, therefore we do exegesis instead of what Eisegesis. We try to get out of the text what was intended to be there for the original audience before we come and make applications to ourselves. So when we read, like say Genesis one to eleven, for instance, we don't say how do, how should this be interpreted in light of our day first. We say, what was the Holy Spirit doing through Moses as he wrote to the original audience, that is the second generation of Israel, um, about origins of the world? We find out how would they have read the text first. And if, if we can determine how they would have read the text, that's our interpretation. Then we make applications to our world today. Last week, we observed um, that God is both merciful and just in his dealings with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. We spent a lot of time on that. Some pretty crazy stuff. But to me, it's actually one of the, one of the demonstrations of the validity of Scripture is the fact that the Bible is willing to report cultural elements, even if it looks kind of bad, right? The Bible a lot of times just reports, this is just what happened, just the facts, man. This is just the facts, right? Um, and there would be a lot of temptation to try to alter the facts. In fact, there were early church fathers and early Christians that did try to alter the facts of the Old Testament, not in the sense of like changing the scripture, but they would reinterpret the scripture because they were embarrassed by stories like Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and the way his behavior. And so the fact that the Bible's willing to report to us some of these things that really put our heroes in bad light actually makes it more valid. It doesn't um, invalidate the scripture. All right, let's uh let's go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 8. You know the um when we talk talk about this topic, I don't know about you guys, but I mean my kids watched uh all those ice age movies and every time you turn around there's another movie that comes out for children that has to do you know, the good dinosaur and and you've got all the Jurassic Park movies. I don't know if I'd call those for children. Although uh, we, we've we gotten more and more liberal as our kids have gotten older. We would have never shown Joshua Jurassic Park. But we are f- totally free to show my little Samuel Jurassic Park now. I don't know what's going on. I'm compromising as as we get older. Or maybe we're loosening up. I'm not sure which it is. Um, but, you know, th- it's real clear when you watch these movies the worldview that's coming through. Obviously, Ice Age, it's totally built upon evolutionary worldview you watch jurassic park the newer jurassic park the first thing you see is the foot of a bird and when you first see it it's like there's just and then the camera goes back and then you see it's a bird and the implication is is they're, they're trying to draw the connection between the evolutionary theory that dinosaurs have basically resulted in today's birds that's the theory where did all the dinosaurs go well uh, a lot of them are now today 's birds, <clears throat> and so that 's the way the movie starts off and so when you When you consider something like the ice age, you know kids are seeing the Ice age movie, they start hearing about the ice age from the time they 're in elementary school, and they 're told that there 's four main ice ages, and uh, each ice age takes about two hundred thousand years. And when you consider all the various ice ages that we're talking about several million years, at least 2.5 million years for the ice ages to take place, which obviously on a literal reading of the scripture just makes the Bible just outmoded, right? On a, li- on a straightforward reading of the Bible, if, if what they're saying about the ice age is true, um, then, w- then we've got the wrong reading of the Bible. Not to mention the fact that the Bible really doesn't seem to say a thing about an ice age, right there's not a whole lot in the bible i don't know maybe you can find something that shows that demonstrates in a particular verse about ice coming down and and being over large masses of land um i don't know where we would find it um there's only three references that we know of to ice uh there's lots of stuff about snow but really ice shows up all in the book of job three different places in fact, keep your finger in Genesis 8. And let's turn to Job 37. Job, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings. Oh, yeah, I already want past it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. No, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So right before Psalms. So, so Job thirty-seven, ten is one of the three references to ice in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen. That's about all you get. So, you know, and, and contextually, if you look up above um, there's just kind of this is one of those sections where God is basically talking to Job and saying who are you you know here's what I've done what have you done where were you and so right in the middle of that kind of one of those sections there's this idea of God ice comes from the breath of God and then in the parallelism of the what seems to be a poetic section the broad waters are frozen what does that mean? Broad waters, you know. Could this fit the ice age? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't know that this is God's burden to demonstrate the ice age to Job. But then again, you know, Job is—he's living in very ancient times, and maybe God is pointing to some glacier and saying the broad waters have been created by me. And so it could be a hint at something. But then again, maybe it's just talking about a frozen lake. Maybe it's just talking about a big frozen river. Um, we really really have no idea. Turn back to Genesis 8 though. And we're just going to make a few quick observations of this text. Uh this is, you know, at the end of the flood, which as we've demonstrated both in the sermon time and in Sunday school that Genesis 6 to 9 just there's no question about what the text is purporting that this is a universal worldwide flood. Now, you can just try to dispute that from a scientific standpoint. But if you're just approaching the text, you start with the text, it's undeniable what Moses is trying to communicate here. You can disagree with Moses. You can say that Moses just didn't understand cosmology or didn't understand a lot of things about science, but it's, it's undeniable what Moses was thinking he was communicating. Uh, so in verse 20, we have this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord... And took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered a burnt offering offering on the altar now the first time i read that when i was a young person when i was a brand new christian i started reading through my king james bible i said oh no noah you just brought animals two by two and now you're sacrificing these are going you're putting these guys into uh, extinction what's the response to that yeah he was actually he brought two by two but he was also commanded to bring clean animals onto the ark that were going to be for this very purpose and so there were clean animals extra animals that were brought on for the sake of worship as soon as they got off the ark and that's what's going on here he's not throwing some animal species into extinction and so but he is off he's worshiping the lord Um, and then verse 21 what's the lord's response the lord smelled a soothing aroma then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And so this is what we call the Noahic covenant. Uh, Noah, everybody's destroyed. Noah and his family, eight people get off the ark. They worship the Lord. They, um, so there's this renewal of this covenant, and God promises that he's never again going to destroy the world the way he just did again, as we've talked about in the past, if this was just merely a local flood, then God's done local floods all over the place many times. But if this is really a universal flood, that's never happened again. And so God has continued to keep that covenant. Then and what we're interested in is, um, is the next part, verse 22. This is part of the covenant as well. While the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat winter and summer and day and night shall not cease so after the flood god makes this covenant renews this covenant with noah he's never going to destroy the world again and the basic processes uh, are going to continue until uh, the end until the earth remains and so until the end of earth history god's making this promise to noah you've just worshiped me i've just destroyed the earth but i'm making this covenant with you and your progeny and we're going to see seed time and harvest cold and heat winter and summer day and night it shall not cease and so there seems to be a connection um god is is making some sort of like um some uniformitarian promise that things are going to kind of move along in a fairly normal not that there aren't ebbs and flows but a fairly normal way uh, that would be markedly different from something like the flood right Um, that had just happened before and so that's virtually all we really have to go on let's look at one other passage and then we're going to we're going to watch a couple videos look at Romans 1 uh, verse 20 just generically speaking about creation, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So since the creation, God has revealed things about himself, um, and to where people are now without excuse. If you look at verse eighteen, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven against on, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may, what may be known of God is manifest in them. So, this wrath of God thing has been revealed from heaven in lots of different ways. When Adam and Eve fell, God instituted death. Um, when, um, when the whole human race had turned corrupt. God brought the flood. When you have a local area where their sin had been filled up and the outcry was so great, God brings down fire and brimstone. He saves Lot. Uh, But there seems to be some argument here that we can discern things about the character of God uh, from creation itself. And from the very beginning, his attributes are being revealed so that we're without excuse. So all this begs the question is if all the Bible really says is, okay, there's, there was the flood, there seems to be some generic uniformity after the flood. Um, the only real mentions of ice we have are some obscure passage in Job um, that references ice. What are we to make of the ice age? And is this really that important of an issue? Um, is this, do people make a big deal about the ice age when they interact with christians or when they talk to people about the bible so for, let me just rephrase that question in a different way like when you're evangelizing and i know for me a lot of times when i'm sharing the gospel one of the questions i get on a fairly regular basis is oh yeah what about all the dinosaurs raise your hand if you've had that question when you're witnessing maybe not as much these days yeah i get that question quite a bit um you know, or people will say, yeah, you know, uh, you know, we know evolution's true. The Bible doesn't seem to say anything about Neanderthals. What does the Bible say about Lucy? What does the Bible say about, uh, you know, all these types of things? But one of the questions that that is clear, and we're going to see it in the video here, is... Is the Ice Age seems to at least throw a challenge upon the traditional view of biblical history? And so, does that really, really matter? Um, we're going to take a look at that. So, let's go, press forward. Is this our second video? Okay, so we're going to watch about four minutes of this particular video to try to answer the question Does the Ice Age really even matter? Is it that big of a deal? what we think about the ice age the fact that the bible doesn't seem to say a whole lot about it um the fact that uh at least traditionally back in the 70s people said there were four ice ages uh, now it's up to 30 ice ages um wh- what's the big deal why are we taking up time with this in sunday school class on september 25th 2016 at 9:24 in the morning right let's let's check out this video
2: topic this time is the Ice age. only the Bible can explain it. Provocative title. But I will flush it out for you and see and you'll understand what I mean by that. You' better have some sweaters available because people tell me when I talk about this subject they feel cold. <laughs> but don't worry, uh, when I talk uh, this evening you can take them off. <laughs> right. Well, here's those earth science challenges. This is just a sample, like I said, that is 16 out of 40 I wrote down. Um, we have hundreds of them, of which the Ice Age is one of those challenges, you know. The challenges, how can you account for Ice Age in your model? Well, that's what I've tried to work on and explain for 35 years. And here's some of the results of those challenges like I went through before. It's caused many to doubt God's word. Yeah, it's caused tens of thousands of atheists, agnostics, millions of Christians to try to fit evolution in deep time into the Bible, enhance the local flood myth, and it's resulted in a mass exodus of the youth, starting in grade school, they learn about it and then, then they become more out of touch with church, and that's why the book Already Gone was mentioned because they're already gone, they're in church, but they're already gone mentally, and, it's a, and we need to get our youth back and this is what part, this is about, this so this issue is a very important issue. So let's talk about the ice age. What is an ice age? Well, it's simply a great increase in snow and ice. Uh, we have 10% of the continental areas are covered by ice now and you know where they are. During the ice age, it was 30%. Most of northern Canada, northern United States. Excuse me, most of Canada, the northern United States. Also, I wanna make a point that I'm gonna come back to at the end. It's the last major geophysical event In Earth history, the last major thing ever since the Ice Age, which is after the flood, it's been generally uh, uniformitarianism, present processes, you know, slow processes like we observe today. Uh, That we do observe today has been going on since the end of the Ice Age. So it's the last major event. So I'm going to make a point. So, what is the challenge of the Ice Age? Well, the evolutionists say, well, each Ice Age takes 100,000 years. A glacial phase is 90,000, interglacial phase is 10,000. And over the last 2.5 million years, there's been about 30 regularly repeating ice ages during the past 2.5 million years. Now, you might have heard there was only four ice ages. How many have heard there was only four ice ages? Okay, have you? Or three, or five sometimes. How many have heard that that is obsolete? Well, it's been obsolete since the 1970s, believe it or not. And it's still taught in, in museums, like the museum at Price, Utah. It has a display showing the four ice ages, but that's been uh, thrown out uh, for, since the 70s. And now they have 30. And why do they have 30? It's not because of the deposits you see on land. It's because they get their ice age, number of ice ages from deep sea cores. And they measure in um, microorganisms what's called the oxygen isotope ratios, which is, they, they believe, proportional to temperature. And I think it generally is, but there's lots of exceptions. So when the, it wiggles this way, it's an ice age. When it wiggles this way, it's an interglacial. So it does this dozens of times, going down that core. So to them, that's, that's how they get those 30 ice ages. And here's a typical statement they give. This is from an anti-creationist book by Arthur Strawler, an atheist. Increasing the duration of the ice age by a factor of about 10. In other words, they increased the age of Antarctica by a, a factor of 10 is what he's talking about. But doing this, he says, greatly increases the stress upon the creation of scientists who must expo- compress the events of 15 million years into 4,000 years of post-flood time. In other words, can we explain the ice age and those multiple ice ages? And even when Antarctica started to glaciate about 30 million years ago, reached a peak at about 15 million been steady state ever since. That's what he's talking about. Can we explain such things? Well, do you give up? Uh, just believe what they say? You know, no. You, you start examining the data. You know, Look at what they're talking about. What, and, you know, Like I said, when I find out, they have problems too explaining the Ice Age. The Ice Age is not uh, a showcase for their model, as I'll show. And I hold fast to that, which is good. I put on my biblical glasses and, and examine the data. So the first thing we need to talk about is, was there an ice age? Maybe we don't have to explain anything if there wasn't one. Well, the way to find out whether there was an ice age is to go look at areas that were glaciated recently, like...
0: All right. Okay, so I just wanted to show that introduction to basically um, give Michael O'Rourke the opportunity to explain why this is important uh, from his perspective Michael Oard uh, was retired from the National Weather Service. He got his master's uh, in atmospheric science from the University of Washington and has been studying this issue for about 40 years. In this video, he says 35 years, but it's now up to 40 years. And, um, and so he would argue, and I would agree with him, that this is an important issue. Um, it has caused people to doubt God's word because, on a straightforward reading of God's word, um, we don't have two point million years for these ice ages to take place. Um, it's caused, in his opinion, um, hundreds, thousands of agnostics and atheists as they look at different aspects of the Bible. When they see that the Bible doesn't seem to be matching the current theories, they say they chuck the Bible, and so on and so forth. So, what I want you to notice as we as we watch um, the longer video. The thing I really appreciate about uh, Michael Ord is, and, and this is true of a lot of scientists, is he's really careful to use weasel words. What I mean by weasel words is, we think that this might explain, this is one way to explain this. He's very careful to say when something's coming from the Bible to say, this is what I know. And when he's offering theories and explanations to say, this is what I think. That's just a very good practice. And so I want to, as we've done in this course, I want to encourage you guys to follow the same example. I, I don't, I'm not a meteorologist like Michael Ord, and I ha, I've been studying the Ice Age now for exactly um, one week. And so I don't have the wherewithal to know how to, to evaluate everything that he's going to lay out for us. Um, But I do think that he sets a good example in starting with the Bible. And if we think that our interpretation of the Bible is firm, then is there a rational way to explain, a reasonable way to explain other things that we see uh, in nature? And if there is a rational explanation, um, then there wouldn't seem to be any reason to throw away our interpretation of the Bible. Um, however, if we're coming to an interpretation of the Bible that says po- purple polka dotted unicorns inhabit all of North America, there are literally hundreds of thousands of purple polka dotted unicorns. And then we go out in nature and we look and, and we don't see any purple polka dotted unicorns anywhere in North America. Then there's probably some good reason to go back to the Bible and say, did I misinterpret it? Right. Um, But if the Bible seems to report something, or like in this case, if the Bible really doesn't, it doesn't say anything specifically about the ice age, but it does have a lot to say about the flood. It has a lot to say about history and Bible history and stuff like that. If we look out into the world and if there's a rational way to explain that harmonizes with the scriptures, um, I would encourage us to stick with our, our initial reading of the Bible and so we'll lay this out to you guys well um i think we'll have some time for questions at the end um this is so let's take a look at his theory and see what you think i got to watch it about five times and i still don't understand all the terminology so this guy's hopefully you guys can just really uh what does milton say gird up the loins of your minds and take some notes and i think you guys will find a lot of this very interesting let's take a look oh by the way If you want to check out more about Michael Ord, you can go to his site, MichaelOrds.net. There's also a really cool bio on him on Answers in Genesis. Really neat guy. So let's take a look at this.
2: this is the beautiful Athabasca Glacier in the Canadian Rockies that has been receding. This sign right there, that's where it was in 1890, and yet it has been receding. And when it leaves behind, you can examine what uh, ice does. It leaves behind rocks of all sizes, within usually sand and silt, kind of in a finer grain matrix. It leaves behind in moraines. And lateral moraines. End moraines and lateral moraines are formed when the glacier pushes out material ahead of it. And as it's along the side, it's called a lateral moraine. When it's in the front, it's called a terminal end moraine. Speaking of this, I can't help but make a comment on global warming. Yes, all glaciers of the world have been receding, or mostly all. And yes, it is true there has been global warming. And I believe it is true that man has been a cause of it. But I believe that nature is part of it, too, because... Between 1350 and 1850, we had the Little Ice Age, where all the glaciers in the world advanced. Now uh, we're in the opposite fluctuation, where they're receding. So I think this is probably due to uh, the uh, effects of the sunshine and less volcanic ash in the stratosphere, of why we're getting some of the global warming. There's a beautiful Enmery, very sharp-looking, made not too long ago, probably made about 1890. Another feature you observe around glaciated areas is scratched bedrock. As the glacier moves over bedrock, it has rocks in the bottom of it. And those rocks in the bottom scratch the bedrock. So it's typical to see striated uh, bedrock, or pavement, as they call this. Also, some of the rocks themselves get scratched. And a lot of times, they get scratched in different directions. Here's uh, one set going that way, and there's another set going this way like this. And it's probably because the rock turned a little bit in the ice. The ice is more plastic and malleable, so that's probably why you have striations in different uh, directions on rocks. So those are some of the features we see in currently glaciated areas. <laughs> so let's extend those to features where it's claimed to have been glaciated. Here's one area where I nearly li- uh, uh, used to live, west of Great Falls, Montana, near Augusta, Montana, this is the Rocky Mountain front. The Rocky Mountains were glaciated during the Ice Age, and the ice came about 10 miles out of the high plain and formed this end moraine, just typically as what you see at the the Athabasca Glacier. I've taken a picture of of this from this part of the end moraine right here. It was breached right in here. Probably when the glacier melted, it breached through the end moraine right here. So that's why there's a gap there. When you look at the material in the end moraine, it's very similar to glaciers you see today. It's rocks of all sizes in a finer grain matrix surrounding the rocks so typically they call that glacial till. Also as you go when you go up into the Rocky Mountains you see scratched bedrock going east in fact there's an 800 foot cliff right along here the glacier came up out of this valley scratched the bedrock and went down over an 800 foot cliff Also you find in the um, in the moraine that I showed you previously, you find rocks that are scratched in several different directions. Typical what you see in glaciated areas. And this is in an area that gets up in the 80s for high temperatures in the summertime. Also, as you tour around the west, you see that out of some of the mountain valleys of the western U.S., you see moraines. Just like you see at um at Glacier. This is probably one of the best moraines that I, I've ever seen before. This is the horseshoe-shaped lateral and end moraines around uh, beautiful Wallawa Lake in northeast Oregon. It, about, it moved out onto the Enterprise Plain in northeast Oregon, about 4,000 feet altitude, where it gets probably a high temperature of 90 uh, as the average in July. There's the lateral moraine, end moraine, and lateral moraine. They're fairly sharp looking, indicating that the ice age ended not that long ago. Furthermore, a feature like this could not uh, formed during the flood. Uh, This feature has to form by other mechanisms, and it's on top of flood sediments, so the ice age occurred after the flood. And here's this, uh, uh, another picture of that lateral moraine. You can see the trees for scale. This lateral moraine is 600 feet tall. And here's uh, what you see within the lateral moraine. Glacial till. Rocks of all sizes in a finer grain matrix. And you see these uh, around the sierra mountains and other uh, uh, wind river mountains of the western united states also you see these erratic boulders here and there most of them i see are kind of sub-rounded or rounded i think that a lot of erratics were, were transported by water this one is very angular this is the famous okotope erratic southwest of calgary alberta this forms a line of erratics from jasper Alberta, down into northern Montana. It's kind of a line and very angular, which means they didn't roll down there. Probably they formed, uh, they were deposited by icebergs as ice was melting. Here's, a, here's another famous erratic called the Bellevue erratic. Now this erratic is, uh, now erratic boulder is, is a boulder that uh, rock, that does not prop in the local area. It's been transported somehow. That's what they mean by an erratic boulder or exotic boulder is another name. This one is found southwest of Portland, Oregon in the Willamette Valley. It's uh, composed of argillite, which is a slightly metamorphosed shale. And the nearest outcrop of that is in northern Idaho. <laughs> and it's well south of the ice, where the, I- the boundary of the ice, by the way. How did it get down there? And it's very angular. The only way you can think about it is, is it on an iceberg. And how would an iceberg take it down there? Well, when Glacial Lake Missoula broke, it through eastern Washington, through the Columbia Gorge, and spread over Portland, Oregon, 400 feet deep and up into the Willamette Valley. So if there was a glacial Lake Missoula and a Lake Missoula flood, there had to be a a thick ice dam in northern Idaho to block up the, the water in the Clark Fork Valley, indicating again that the ice age was a real event. So when you sum it all up, this is the big picture right here. Ice covered practically all of Canada. Just a little bit in the Yukon Territory was unglaciated. It came down in the northern United States to around uh, they claim northern Missouri, and I'm not quite sure of that. Um, I'm, that's a subject of research, but it got uh, pretty far south of the Great Lakes, and um, it covered uh, some of the mountain areas as ice caps. But interesting enough, in Alaska, the Brooks Range and Alaska Range. Uh, they were glaciated, but the lowlands of Alaska were not glaciated. And that's where you find all those woolly mammoths, bisons and uh, uh, horses and lots of animals in ice age, uh, permafrost in in those areas. When you go to Europe and Asia, this is a a general feature where the ice was. It covered much of England and and, uh, northern Germany and Poland and uh, clear out in the northwest Siberia. Now, there's a little question on the boundary right in here. And some people think that the ice covered uh, the Barents Sea, north of Norway there. So there's still some controversy over the exact uh, distribution of the ice. But when you add it all up, ice covered 30% of the continental areas. The closest ice to this area would have been up in Pennsylvania. Can we explain it? Well, I believe we can. First of all, we can tell from the clues that it's post-flood. It's on the surface of flood sediments. And we definitely don't have it today in the present climate. The the ice sheets in Canada are gone. So it must have happened in a transitional climate from the flood to the present climate. Well, that means the flood could have caused the ice age. Well, indeed, I believe that is the case. So let's see how the Genesis flood fulfills the requirements for an ice age. Well, the the flood was a giant volcanic tectonic event. Tectonic is crustal uh, earth movements. But uh, at the end of the flood you'd have a huge shroud of volcanic dust and aerosols. Aerosols are fine uh, particles about a micron in diameter. They would be floating on the stratosphere. What they do, what we know from modern volcanic eruptions, they cause cooler temperatures, especially in summer and over the large land masses. So after the flood, you'd have so much volcanic ash and aerosols that you'd cause a a pretty good cooling right off the bat. Also, the Fountains of the Great Deep and volcanism cause a warm ocean. There's lots of ways to cause a warm ocean in, uh, in any flood model. But the Fountains of the Great Deep imply that there was uh, water trapped in the crust, and it came up. And at the end of the flood, uh, that warm water coming from the crust would have been added to the current oceans, resulting in a warm ocean from top to bottom and pole to pole. You could probably swim in the Arctic Ocean right after the flood it was so warm. There'd be no sea ice. Anyway, the significance of the warm water is that the warmer the water, the more the evaporation. In fact, at 86 degrees Fahrenheit, you would have seven times the amount of evaporation of of water than at zero degrees centigrade, or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Huge amount of evaporation with warmer water. Also, the mechanism is going to persist but it's going to wane with time as the volcanic ash uh, settles out and the earth settles down to equilibrium and the oceans cool. Particularly the oceans cooling is the key for the waning of the ice age. Here's kind of a schematic of how this would work. Uh, The volcanic dust and aerosols would reflect some of the sunlight back to space, cooling the surface of the earth. Mainly the, the land masses at mid and high latitudes. Now volcanic ash and aerosols filter out of the atmosphere, sink out of the atmosphere in about one to three years. So you have to keep replenishing the stratosphere um, after the the flood. And indeed, there's a tremendous amount of ice age volcanism in ice age sediments, indicating we had tremendous volcanism for quite a while after the flood. Now they notice, they know, that uniformitarians notice that, they know volcanism causes cooling. But you know, when they stretch out the ice age in a two million year period, it's nothing. But when we telescope it into a short time scale, it becomes very, very significant. Now, with basic meteorology, you can guesstimate, that's that's meteorological jargon, the storm tracks during the ice age. Storm tracks would be in areas where you have strong horizontal temperature differences. And where would they be? They would generally be between the cold, cool land and the warm ocean, so you'd have a storm track parallel with the east coast. Also another uh, storm track would be uh, cold uh, ice, ice sheet and uh, a little bit warmer land here, so you'd have a storm track just south of the ice sheet, and storms would generally follow these. Now these are general storm tracks. In meteorology, chaos usually rules, so
0: <laughs>
2: these, are just, these are just general. And most of the time, precipitation in wintertime storms falls on the north side of the storm. So it falls right in there, where the ice was building up. In this schematic, the, this is uh, where the ice is still building up. Also, you can figure out where the main evaporation areas are. Generally, with west-east flow, you have fairly uh, drier, cooler air from the continent going out over the warmer ocean. That produces strong evaporation on the east coasts of continents and of course uh, in, in, our, in our, the ocean, close to the land, you'd have strong evaporation. Those are close to the areas at the mid and high latitudes where you want it to evaporate. It's close to where the building ice sheets developed in Canada and the northern United States and, and of course Scandinavia. Now I'm gonna go on to support for the model. There's lots of evidence for wet deserts and I'm gonna show you a, a few uh, a diagram and a picture uh, coming up, but the evidence shows that the, the dry areas about 30 degrees north, like uh, southwest United States, the Dead Sea area, Australia, lots of places were once much wetter. Here's a plot of the what's called Pluvial Lakes in the southwest United States, right in this area. Now, this is just in the Great Basin. There was lakes down in here. Death Valley had a lake uh, about 600 feet deep. This is Lake Bonneville. Uh, which is a Great Salt Lake about six to eight times as large, 800 feet deep, deeper. By the way, the average depth of Salt uh, Great Salt Lake, Lake not today is only 15 feet deep. It was 800 feet deeper during the ice age. Now, uniformitarians, how are they going to get a climate change to, to fill these things up in those areas? It is very difficult. But like I said, they're in our model, we fill them up first. As the flood drains off, it'll fill up pockets or basins uh, in the land at the end of the flood. And by the way, if you've ever been to these areas, there's beautiful, large shoreline features along this Lake Bonneville here, shorelines and high deltas. If you land at Salt Lake Airport, look out the window along the foothills, and you see the shorelines. There's a two distinct shorelines. In fact, I found shorelines around this this lake. It's called Lake Lahontan. Uh, it's today you just have a few shriveled remnants of that lake. These lakes right here they get up to almost 100 degrees now in the summer. Um, I've I've taken pictures around there. There are Mono Lake there, Glacial Lake, Mono Lake, and then Death Valley. There's shorelines around Death Valley. Quite a different climate during the Ice Age, a lot wetter. Now, it's interesting that the Sahara Desert was much wetter. Man lived in the Sahara Desert by the thousands, and he has all kinds of rock art. This is a picture of a giraffe on a rock in the Sahara Desert. And I'm going to just summarize uh, a quote from the book, The Great Sahara. The Sahara is a veritable art gallery of prehistoric paintings. The evidence is enough to show that the Sahara was once a well-populated area of the prehistoric world. Yet, there is man's work in the most inaccessible corners of the desert. Literally thousands of figures of tropical and aquatic animals. Yes, aquatic animals. Enormous herds of cattle. Hunters armed with bows and boomerangs. And even domestic scenes of women and children in the circular huts in which they live. Why would the Sierra be much wetter during the Ice Age? Well, because you had a huge amount of evaporation right after the flood. The lowlands of Siberia, Alaska, and the Yukon were unglaciated. And this is a mystery. And here's a plot of uh, the mountains being glaciated. And the lowlands, which are are in yellow there, are unglaciated. By the way, most models of the Ice Age have extreme difficulty forming the Ice Age. Now, some will produce it, but a lot of times it's because those models are tweaked to produce it. Anyway, Phillips and Held said in the Journal of Climate, Siberia and Alaska, well, they said, we now have glaciation. (laughs) They did produce glaciation, but unfortunately, it was outside the areas where it existed during the last ice age. (laughs) And that included the lowlands of, of Alaska, Siberia, and the Yukon. In other words, those lowlands like to glaciate. Why weren't they glaciated in our model? It's because of all the warm onshore flow. Mainly it was the onshore flow that kept it uh, ice free. Now the woolly mammoths in Siberia. What were millions of mammoths doing in Siberia where they couldn't live today, mainly because it's boggy, they can't get around, and the bog uh, vegetation is toxic to to them because they ate grass. Not only were the woolly mammoths in Siberia, you had woolly rhinoceros, horse, bison, a lot of different animals that lived in Siberia during the Ice Age. So what, what's going on? Why, why these sorts of things? Well, first of all, you've got to determine whether the mammoths died during the flood or during the Ice Age. I think from what I've seen that for it, studied, it's overwhelmingly they died at the end of the Ice Age. One of the main evidence is in northwest Siberia, you find woolly mammoth skeletons on top of glacial till. Which means that as the glaciers receded from northwest Siberia, the mammoths came up in that area, and then they died on top. So they died at the end of the Ice Age. That's the distribution right there, all across the northern hemisphere. In fact, you don't find them in areas where the the ice uh, lasted the longest, which is much of Canada and uh, northern and central Scandinavia, which is what you'd expect during an Ice Age. And during the Ice Age, uh, they would be able to migrate over a, a Bering Land Bridge. Now as the snow piles on land, it evaporates from the ocean, of the, the original water, and the sea level drops. And the, the Bering Land Bridge is very shallow, so man and animals could easily migrate uh, into the United States and down through an ice-free corridor. They came down here and spread through into the southern United States, Central and South America. Now. A good indication that the climate was quite different during the Ice Age is the distribution of the Saga antelope. The solid line there represents the current distribution of the Saga antelope, and the the dashed line is the historical. Their their range is shrinking. But those dots represent Ice Age distributions. You can see them up in northern Siberia. What's so significant about that? Well, the Saga antelope has thin hooves, and it likes wide-open spaces. Plains and can't negotiate permafrost very well and swamps very well, indicating that this area was totally different uh, ecologically during the ice age than it is there today. During the summers, it's a it's quite a swamp land because of the melting of permafrost. Permafrost melts that much and has nowhere to go, and so it ponds, and then you get all these plants growing in there, and it becomes a bog land. A- and it's hardly any animals can live there today in those 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 areas. This is an indication that we very likely had no permafrost during the Ice Age. Now the uniformitarians, I think, have not really faced this, this problem because they grudgingly might say, well, maybe it was a little warmer climate, but, but some say, hey, it was during the Ice Age. It had to be a lot colder in Siberia. And they say, well, oh, that would solve the problem of those bogs. It freezes freeze the bogs. Well, if it freezes the bogs, what are they going to eat? And here's a woolly mammoth timeline, whether you start with uh, two elephants that leave the ark at the end of the ice age, or two woolly mammoths. I believe it was two elephants, and the mastodons and mammoths are part of the elephant kind. But regardless, they're gonna grow slowly. They grow slowly, and then finally, when their population's gonna mushroom by geometric progression. Yes, you have plenty of time for millions of mammoths in a 700-year ice age. Finally, towards the end of the ice age, the climate changes, it's a dynamic climate. It becomes colder, drier, and windy, and they go extinct at the end of the ice age. This is the famous Beresovaka mammoth that was uh, towed out of uh, uh, northeast Siberia, and that's generally the position they found them. It's in the St. Petersburg Museum in uh, St. Petersburg, and it had a broken foreleg, and broken ribs, broken pelvis, and it was in a general standing position the question is, uh, that really plagues most people, is how did these animals die? Well, I believe the solution is found in the deposits surrounding the mammoths. Let's take a look at what they were, they're buried in. Are they buried in uh, bog, uh, with bog uh, material, uh, river material? Some are in, in those, I think. But the mass majority of them are in windblown silt. This is a recent quote from a book called Mammoths and the Mammoth Fauna. A particular interest for paleozoologists is what's called the odama. The odamas are hills of uh, that are formed after permafrost melts around it and then leaves some permafrost as hills. This is actually a lus layer, that is windblown silt, as a rule containing the largest amounts of remains of late Pleistocene animals. They're buried in windblown silt. So what's the picture here? Well, I believe they died in in, in large dust storms, sort of like What happened in the Dust Bowl era. This is a picture from the Dust Bowl era, that uh, if you were in a dust storm, you would see just a cloud of this dust uh, coming, and the visibility would go down to zero. There might not be any wind right before it. It'd be like with a cold front. Sometimes there's no wind ahead of a cold front. Suddenly, the winds just really pick up, and and the visibility drops to zero. And dust drifts, talk about dust drifts. During the Dust Bowl eras, dust drifts covered up uh, fences, machinery, up, this one is up to the tops of a house, hmm. and by the way, I believe that the amount of windblown silt in, in those areas of Siberia, some in place, some places, is over a hundred feet thick. So I believe you had worse dust storms up there in Siberia than you did in the Dust Bowl era. They might ask, "Well, why are we going to have late uh, ice age dust storms?" Well, because of colder winters, colder oceans, which means more sea ice which also means a drier atmosphere, and stronger north-south temperature differences, all resulting in lot stronger winds and dry cold fronts, lot drier cold, uh, cold fronts. So here's the big picture. Woolly Mammoth peacefully eating uh, grass and buttercups. Yes, buttercups. The reason we have those is because uh, uh, they were in his mouth and in his stomach, uh, half decayed. The digestion of a woolly mammoth doesn't occur in the stomach. It occurs in the in- after the stomach, by the way. I think that's a key to why we, we the, the vegetations only have to But anyway, the wind's come up. Uh-oh. He's going to ride it out. Guess what? He ends up like a snow fence. And what happens to snow fences? The snow piles up around it. The dust would pile up. He's starting to suffocate. And he's in a standing position. He tries to get out, and he breaks his uh, right arm leg bone because it appears that he was alive when that front leg uh, broke. And by the way there's an analog for this uh, in Hot Springs, South Dakota where some of the mammoths that fell into that sinkhole excavated 52 uh, mammoths in Hot Springs, South Dakota in a sinkhole. Some of them have broken forelimbs also that the researcher there thinks it was because they're trying to get out of the mud. In this case uh, the dust packing up would be almost like concrete Finally, other dust storms totally cover him up. And he ends, ends up in a standing position in the dust. And the perma, how do you get him in the permafrost? This has always been a major question. One person said, do you jam him into the permafrost? No, the permafrost, in this case, will come up to meet him. And by the way, permafrost also shifts and faults once you get it up there. And the faulting can break the pelvis of the Barissavaca mammoth and its ribs. So, in a nutshell, that's the story of Oh, I believe they went extinct. Also, something called disharmonious associations. They find, as a rule, you have animals that love the heat and love the cold that were buried in ice age deposits together. In the book, *Quaternary Extinctions A Prehistoric Revolution, it said the late Pleistocene communities, that's ice age communities, were characterized by the coexistence of species that today are allopatric, translated, not climatically associated and presumably ecologically incompatible. Disharmonious associations have been documented for late Pleistocene ice age floras, that's your plants, terrestrial invertebrates, lower invertebrates, birds and mammals. In fact, it was common. And that's exactly what you expect because this distribution would occur with cool summers and mild winters. Well, in the uniformitarian model, you have cold winters, period. You shouldn't expect that. One of the most outrageous instances is in England, where you have hundred associations of hippos with musk ox and reindeers in the same stratigraphic layer. How do how do hippos get up there during the ice age? Well, because I believe Britain was warm with a lot of warm onshore flow for quite a while and very wet, very heavy precipitation. So the hippo, after the the flood and leaving the, the ark, would uh, find it congenial up in there. And finally, as but as the temperatures cool off. He, uh, he found himself in the wrong environment and it was being populated by reindeer and musk ox and woolly mammoths, and finally they all died and were, were, were buried in what it says here in this quote in stratigraphic context, it seemed to indicate contemporary. In other words, they died at the same time. Also, they found out that when things were supposed to get better at the end of the Ice Age, it was warming up, the ice was melting, suddenly all these large animals disappeared on whole continents or went extinct all over the world. End ice age extinctions. 100 species of large animals in North America, so That 70% died at the end of the ice age, including the horse and the camel. Mm. Europe and Asia lost 75% at the end of the ice age. Australia lost 90% at the end of the ice age. Why? Well, I think it's the same reason they lost, they were lost in Siberia. Uh, It was colder, drier, and windier. I think the dust storms, which there's lots of evidence, was a prime factor in the extinctions at the end of the Ice Age. Here's a quote from a recent book. After many decades of debate, the North American in-Pleistocene megafaunal mass extinction remains a lightning rod of controversy. The extraordinary divergent opinions expressed in this volume show that no resolution is in sight. I would say it can really be explained in the post-flood Ice Age model.
0: All right. The first time I saw that video, I said, praise the Lord for very smart geeks. Um, but one of the things that you pick up or that I pick up from Michael Ord is... There is not a uniformity in secular um, the secular approach to the Ice Age. There's actually several different theories, um, and then there's all kinds of sub-theories. He didn't really go into it in this video. Um, But there's there's a lot of mysteries about the Ice Age to where um, there's just, even though we get this uniformed approach in our public school textbooks, And maybe in the movies for kids, there's a lot of debate and it's, there's just not a uniform approach. There's several different theories. Um, And then Michael Ord is giving one theory uh, from creation scientists. So it's not like Michael Ord's theory is the only theory out there that's being offered by creationists. Uh, But it's something that, that he's laying out and has been very persuasive to many and it is the dominant theory um, that is presented in the in- Answers Bible curriculum. If you go take a look at Answers in Genesis, they'll talk about several different theories. Um, but they, they feel more persuaded by Michael Ord's theory than some of the other ones. Um, but one of the things that you'll see in all of the literature is everybody says, doesn't matter which theory you're looking at, everybody says there's problems in every theory. The Ice Age is... An amazing mystery. There's just things about it that people do not understand. Um, like, why in the world did we not get glaciation up there in lowlands in Alaska? Um, why is it that we have all these animals from cold and warm clim- climates all gathered together and dying in the same beds with the, I can't even remember the word, contemporary anity, meaning they all died at the same time, and so on. The one thing that, um, I want to end with is just this idea. And, and we've seen this. I think we we've, we've see this in the history of the church is um, when we start with the Bible and we say as much as the Bible says and don't go beyond, you know, so don't try to uh, affirm something the Bible doesn't affirm. But let's try to affirm all that the Bible does affirm. Um, then when we look out. Um, through our bible glasses and say can we make a rational explanation for things in the world that by and large as the evidence comes in that's what we're seeing Um, now is there evidence out there that are are there things that we just still don't know obviously Um, but we have to be careful about this whole i'll I'll, I'll try to see if i keep telling you guys i'm going to send you this article by um (laughs) An archaeologist that talks about the very, very small percentage of things that we've discovered in the past through archaeology, and therefore how ridiculous it is to say that something could not have happened because we haven't discovered it in archaeology. That's like saying we can't say there's hay because um, we haven't discovered the needle yet. Um, I don't know if that analogy works. I'll go back and think of a better analogy. Um, but we're, okay, we're. At time. Is there any any questions that you guys have? Yeah, Lo no Luan? okay um, because in the Malayic covenant God one of the things God said was to go ahead and spread the earth. Yeah. Okay, so Luan's question is, is, um, is it possible that the Ice Age happened between the flood and the Tower of Babel because God had commanded human beings to spread? Um, I'll have to go back and look at the timeline. Um, but I, th- I think that the my, my default is, I'll have to do more research on this, is that the spreading or the Tower of Babel would have probably have had to have happened around the same time as the Ice Age. Um, like like uh, Michael was saying, um, the Ice Age covers only 30% of the continents. And so in the areas that we would traditionally associate as where the ark landed and then people began to populate and didn't spread out, that would have been fairly warm climates. But one of the things that regardless of whether you're coming at it from a biblical or secular perspective, most people argue for like this Bering Strait and some of these ice bridges in order for people to get over to the North America and South America. And and virtually all scientists argue for that type of thing. And so you'd have to have something like the Bering Strait with the ocean levels low enough to where people are getting across the Bering Strait to be able to get to North America and South America, if that makes sense. So that would seem to me to think that the Ice Age is still going on after the Tower of Babel because you have to have all these people getting to North and South America. Yeah, a couple and then we'll come to Allison. Yep, Grace, I think. No, no. Anna, that's right. Yeah, so the question is is uniformitarianism the main view of evolutionists and yes it is it it can be a little bit confusing when we talk about basically the two theories are uniformitarianism versus catastrophism so uniformitarianism is the, the dominant view today that you take today's processes and then you assume that everything is always decayed at the same rate and that all the processes are exactly the same not just on earth but all over the universe and then you extrapolate back into the past. That's one of the ways that we get to these really, really old ages. Um, Catastropheism is basically the argument um, that creation scientists make. Is that how do you know that all these processes have always occurred at the same rate as we go back in the past? Because from a biblical perspective, we know that the flood happened. And so lots of stuff that could have theoretically taken a, a short amount of time actually happened very quickly because of this big catastrophe. Um, and the, one of the examples they point to is Mount St. Helens. When you, when you date the rocks after Mount St. Helens, these rocks date at all kinds of periods. But all of them are in the like thousands and hundreds of thousands and some of them are in the millions when we know for sure that they were just created. And the analogy that I'll use a lot of times when I'm talking to people is imagine a scientist walking upon Adam and Eve 10 minutes after they were created and observing them scientifically. They would look like maybe 21-year-old adults, and you could look at their bones. You know, when my child was younger, he was a little small, and they would look at his bone age, like how old is his actual age versus his bone age. And so you could have examined the bone age— of Adam and Eve and arrived at, well, these are 21-year-old adults, so they must have been here for at least 21 years. And you'd be absolutely wrong because what you didn't know is that God had just created them 10 minutes ago. You just weren't there and didn't see it. You didn't have the special revelation to know that. And so if you don't factor in things like God creating immediately, if you don't factor in things like the fall, which affects all of creation, the Bible tells us, if you don't factor in the flood and things like that, then, yeah, you can look back into the past and do what we call historical science and come up with completely wrong conclusions. Now, does uniformitarianism work? Generally speaking, if you're looking at short periods of time, I would say yes, obviously. Uh, it's because our our time period is basically uniform, uniform, uniform that we can make predictions, and Michael Ord can do meteorology for the National Weather Service because then things tend to be uniform, although there's chaos, as he said. Um, and you can make certain weather predictions. But can you always extrapolate that back into the past and creationist scientists say no? So that's that's really the crux of the debate. One final question, and I'm going to be in trouble. You the last year, years, yeah. Yeah, he argues for 700 years uh, based upon what he would argue would be the... The decay rates looking at like say that eighteen ninety and in his theory, how much of the aerosols are in the atmosphere what would have what would have happened to the aerosols and the volcanic dust and I don't understand all the you know you could look at his book and see the way he calculates it all out, but yeah, he basically argues for about seven hundred years, so really good stuff. Again, let's keep in mind w- w- when we're talking about the Bible and we're talking about like kind of the weasel word stuff. Um, but let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much that when we look at your word, we see that it is authoritative and it is sufficient. We can affirm everything that your word says. And uh, when your word does not speak on something, we need not affirm it. And um, But we thank you, Lord, that that we are so blessed to have... Uh, a Bible that comports with reality. Um, how sad it is to think of other religions um, that have falsified history. I'm thinking of like the Mormon religion. And when they look out, read their Book of Mormon, and they look out into the world, they see nothing. And yet when we look at your word and we look out into history and science and so on, we see confirmation. And so help us to hold um, strongly to your word as as we've interpreted it. Uh, if we've made the right interpretations. Um, We pray, Father, we would hold loosely to things that um, are just mere speculation. Thank you for men like Michael Ord and others that are trying to help us explain um, the Ice Age. But we just thank you for your glory, your power, your beauty that we see in such phenomena. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.